Hello, you, and welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today, we're talking about My Neighbor Totoro. We're talking about it with the great Jeannie Finley. Jeannie is the director of a documentary about friend of the show, Aubrey Gordon. The documentary is called Your Fat Friend. We had a great time talking about this, and I cannot wait to share it with you. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I will soon be joined by my marvelous co-host, Sarah Marshall. If you're new to the show, uh, like we say at the beginning, this is a feelings podcast about movies. We invite guests on. They tell us about movies that they love. We explore the feelings that are packed within. It's less about film criticism and more about being a human and what the movies we watch uh, speaks to about that experience. Jeannie Finley is a British filmmaker and documentarian. She's made uh, so many great movies, uh, including Your Fat Friend, as I said up top. And then there's Game of Thrones, The Last Watch. There's Seahorse. There's Indie Tracks. There's Orion, The Man Who Would Be King. Pantomime. Uh, goth Cruise. That's for many of you who listen to this show. Goth Cruise. Teenland. There's, there's so many. Jeannie is wonderful. Can't believe that we had her here uh, to talk about My Neighbor Totoro, which so many of you have requested. And My Neighbor Totoro is a 1988 Japanese animated fantasy film written and directed by Hayao Miyazaki. Uh, and it's animated by Studio uh, Ghibli. It's their first. And we talk about all that and more in this very episode. Jeannie has watched uh, the original and Sarah and I watched the 2004 English dub, just so you know, which I, I believe is the same text, uh, just there are new voice tracks for the 2004 uh, edition. Just want to let you know up front because we reference this here and there through the episode. How are you doing? What's going on in your world? I hope you survived the beginning of the holiday times. I hope everything is as good and as peaceful as it can be. If it's not... I hope this conversation provides a nice little cozy hour of, uh, of of respite. Yeah, tell us what's been going on in your life. I'd love to hear about it. You can find us on social media. We're on uh, Twitter. We're on Blue Sky. We're on Threads. I'm on TikTok. We're all over the place. Uh, you can find us in those places and let us know how you're doing and what you're up to. And don't forget that you, my friend are good. Thank you so much for joining us. We're glad that you're here. I understand this is a stressful time of year, so I'm glad that we can spend it together in this way. You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies is made possible with your support. Thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and Apple Podcast subscriptions. You get bonus episodes and you can listen to our conversation about Debs, which was a, a lesbian spy movie for kids. <laughs> Not really kids, I guess, but for young people, it was a real eye opener for many of you. And it was great to talk about that. And then Sarah and I just have like a sprawling friends chat. So we talk about the movie a bit and then we just like talk about all sorts of things along the way. And this bonus, I'm excited to share it with you. And you get the bonus episode if you uh, subscribe on Apple podcast and or Patreon. And by doing that, you make the show possible. So thanks for doing that. We appreciate you. I've said it a couple of times. I've gone to Jewish Voice for Peace actions and demonstrations, and it's for uh, folks and allies who are calling for peace. So check that out if that is of interest to you. We'll link there in the show notes. They probably have something going on in your area. You can check it out. I talked about uh, Hood Slam last week, which is the big sort of alt indie, a couple feet in queer wrestling event in Oakland. I'm going again this week. I, I got Carolyn to come. <laughs> so we're going to Hood Slam. It's going to be fun. I was like, you want to see something I'm into? Uh, I like people who do this sort of thing. <laughs> Let's go watch them knock each other around for uh, for a couple hours. So uh, I just wanted to shout that out again because I loved the event so much that I felt like I was shouting it out two weeks in a row. And it was cool hearing from y'all who uh, enjoy that sort of thing. So thanks for reaching out. What kind of weird stuff are you into? I like entertainers. I like people who are like, we are here to entertain you. And I learn a lot from that sort of thing. So I'm excited to go back to that. What, uh, what travel plans, if any, do you have coming up? Love to hear about them. I don't know. I think that's it for this introduction. So happy that Jeannie was here. We love that Jeannie was here. And please, 
check out the movie, check out the documentary, Your Fat Friend, which is again about our wonderful friend, Aubrey Gordon, host of Maintenance Phase, part of the uh, expanded universe of this thing we do. And uh, we love her. We love Aubrey Gordon. Uh, pour one out for Aubrey. I don't know, like, do you pour, you pour one out for people who are still alive, right? I'll, I'll pour one out for a living person. <laughs> pour one out for Aubrey, who is alive and well, and who we love. And uh, buckle up. We're gonna talk about Totoro with Jeannie Finley. Thanks for being here. It's a privilege and an honor to get to do this with you. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. Are you gonna sing the song at the end? What I need is a dubstep remix. Yes, you sure do. Of the Totoro theme. Yeah. We're covering my neighbor Totoro, or do people just call this Totoro? Like, is that yes. okay? Little kids sure do. I'm embarrassed to admit and acknowledge this was my first time with this movie that is truly embarrassing for you and that you should feel that way yeah absolutely although i did find out that this got some initial u.s distribution via trauma pictures so that makes me even more sad that i missed it the first go (laughs) that it came here at least sarah marshall we are truly blessed to be joined by genie oh yeah i can see you're coming through for everyone who doesn't know, Sarah is having just slight malfunction in the camera, and it looked like we were talking with a ghost for a while, but now she, we can see her stunning face. You can see my big stuff, Totoro, which is the the real star of this episode. He's not going to say anything, but he's here. Yeah, you've got your arms around him. He looks so comforting. I had um, a young friend go through an entire store to find the largest Totoro for me, and she was successful. (laughs) And we are joined today by Jeannie Finley. Jeannie, hello. Hi. Hello, Jeannie. Hello. I'm so happy to be joining you. This is lovely. So nice to have you. I'm so happy to have you join us. And I feel like this is kind of a holiday season movie for us. And I love that that's the timing this has, because I think we all need this energy at this time of year. Yeah, totally. This is like a, it's like a cozy hug with a little bit of melancholy, I think, which is perfect for holiday season. It's the best kind of hug. If it doesn't have a little melancholy, I don't want it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, aren't you always kind of thinking about death when you get a really nice hug? I know I am. (laughs) I'm thinking of death's embrace every time someone's arms are around me. (laughs) Yeah. Jeannie, what what are you known for and what will have just come out around the time that we release this episode? (laughs) Well, um... I'm a documentary filmmaker based in Nottingham in England. Most people know me for, well, will recently have met me because I've been making uh, a film with Aubrey Gordon, friend of the show, mm. uh, called Your Fat Friend. Right we premiered at Tribeca early in the year and I've been touring around, but I've made a bunch of films. This is my ninth feature. So I have a little criterion collection hmm. dropped in June. That's wild. Which is called People Person, the documentaries of Jeannie Finley, which was I got to go in the cupboard, yeah. the closet, and ah. get all the stuff. That's amazing. It was a total joy. And I picked Totoro as one of my films. Oh, right on. I'm so happy that's in the closet. I love it's like I can't imagine being a person selected by criterion for my body of work they did that for you that's amazing yeah it was as they say in the northeast i felt like i should get a chifty badge i was so chuffed i went to a literary awards show many thousands of years ago and watched an author's wife accept an award on his behalf and these were uh, important to note to americans and she said that if he were here tonight he would be quote chuffed to bits and my friends and i remembered it forever (laughs) when i was a kid if you there's a real tall poppy thing in the northeast Mm -hmm. so if you got too excited about something people would always cut you down by saying what do you want a chufty badge So my husband bought me some chifty budgets. Yeah, good. Yeah. I've been really enjoying following the journey of the film on social media. It looks like it's being so well received and what a blessing for 
both you and Aubrey to get to spend so much time together. That's a really lovely thing. Oh, it's been a total joy and so nice to release it into the world. We made this film over six years mm. because I made I made two other films at the same time. Wow. I made a film called Seahorse, which was about a trans guy having a baby. Mm-hmm. And I made a film on a little show called Game of Thrones, The Last Watch, and I was embedded on the final season wow. making a deeply strange sort of observational film that they let me make, which was amazing so it's now just brilliant to be able to take your foot friend out into the world and Aubrey's just she's such a joy she's so fun she's very funny and very clever and good company so yeah it's very lovely and people share their stories and feel very it's very overwhelming because you I don't know films are sort of like a well, I guess, you know, they're full of, they activate feelings in you, hence this podcast. Famously so, yeah, although some much more than others. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm so happy that we're talking to you inside of this moment in your life and Aubrey's life. Yeah, same. Thank you. It's a real, it's a real joy. I love the show, so I'm very chuffed. We're all chuffed. Totoro is the chuffedest of all. <laughs> what is your relationship, with, before we get into the what the movie is about, what is your relationship with Totoro? Well, I I feel like I've known about Totoro for a long time and it's one of those things that you can't I can't imagine a time when Totoro wasn't wasn't in my life. I made the first work I ever made as a filmmaker was in Tokyo mm. around 2002 and I kept seeing stuffed Totoros everywhere and I I thought, "Oh, this is just another one of those cute kawaii characters where you know they have um, detective bum face." <laughs> And it's like the, the sloppy fried egg man. Yeah, I love that egg guy. <laughs> so I thought, oh, yeah, look, there's Totoro again. And then my daughter was born in 2004 and Totoro was re-released in the UK in 2006. Mm. And it was one of those films that I took her to see and kept watching over and over again when she was tiny. Also, I was learning Japanese, so everyone in my Japanese class was obsessed as well. So Totoro has always been there, really. Oh, fantastic. Well, Sarah, do you want to to kick us off on this journey? I sure do. Okay, so we're, we're talking about Totoro which is a Miyazaki film. And I feel like I haven't looked this up, but like the movie that opened the door to Americans watching Miyazaki or caring. And I remember watching this movie at a sleepover in 1994. And I don't think I've seen it since then until today. And it's just so funny to have seen it. I don't know. Totoro himself becomes so much bigger than the movie kind of genie, as you were saying, and that he just feels like, a character that we all know and he's sort of this anti Mickey Mouse I would say <laughs> because he's like just a giant chill dude who will just give you some acorns sometimes <laughs> <laughs> and just like knows how to shut the hell up that's one of the things I like about <laughs> our neighbor Totoro so and I love look I love Genie from Aladdin yeah. but that guy talks so much you know Genie is is fine for me because he has like a, a human voice but like Mickey Mouse <laughs> no <laughs> don't like him unsettling vibes how would you describe Mickey Mouse's voice here? <laughs> it sounds like an adult man on helium who's trapped you in a van <laughs> so <laughs> so Totoro is about a family moving to a new house to be closer to the hospital that their mother is in and the movie never specifies but I read this as like a TB ward maybe or like a place for people to recuperate from polio just one of those mid-century wasting diseases that we forgot about enough as a society that we now can't remember what vaccines are supposed to be for Mm. but is that what how do you read it Jeannie um I don't know she's she's definitely got the mystery absent mum disease (laughs) (laughs) that seems to happen in in these films or seems to happen in a lot of sort of Miyazaki films there's always an absent mother or she's poorly and just out of frame I think it's weird because you don't realize that she's gone until quite far into the film. Yeah. But yeah, she's ha- she's got the lie down lady disease. <laughs> she's, 
It's got lie down lady itis. It's again, it's like a softer version of the Disney mom where it's like, no, she's not dead. She's just like, you know, kneecapped for a while. And that's what I appreciate. That's what I'm saying. I appreciated. They they didn't murder her. And coming from all of the media for children I came up on, I'm like, thank you. Thanks for right. optimistically keeping this woman alive. <laughs> and now it feels like Disney will have moms around, but in a pointed kind of way, like see a living mom, but then she has nothing to do. So you're like, that's great. I love that. And so this movie is about two sisters, Satsuki and May, who are 10 and four, and their dad voiced in the 2006 re-release by Tim Daly. Tim Daly's best work. Well, I Tim Daly has a very <laughs> deep body of work, but I'm just going to say what I think everyone else wants to say, but I will say it first, which is that the Tim Daly version of this role is an iconic Delph. <laughs> <laughs> To the point that it is somewhat distracting. (laughs) What was it for you, Sarah, specifically, do you think? Well, obviously, all he has to do is voice acting. So it's got to be somewhere in that arena, I think. But it's just, I don't know, he's just so like, well, girl, like he's, he's completely unperturbed by anything. He's like so good tempered and good humored he's stoked to live in this haunted house he's stoked to live in this haunted house (laughs) i don't know he he likes his kids uh he you know he's a bit more laissez-faire than i think is typical these days but what are you gonna do (laughs) so iconic dilf two daughters mom has lying down lady itis and so I mean, basically, this movie is like a haunted house movie, like Insidious or something in reverse, where you move into a house, grandma turns up. Is she their grandma or did she come with the house? What's her deal? Oh, she came with the house. Okay, she came with the house. Yeah, they say that Tim Daly says, she says that you can call her granny if you want. So she's, I think that she's just That's like. That's always so weird. <laughs> yeah. It's like in the new Little Women where Marmy is like, you can call me Marmy. And it's like, don't say that to random strangers, Marmy. Everybody's grandma. Voiced by Pat Carroll, voice of Ursula. Ursula, baby. And yeah, it's kind of a reverse horror movie where they're like, oh, this house is a little weird. Oh, there's tiny little ghost guys in the corners. There's sit sprites. Oh, that's nice. Oh, there's a giant spirit in the forest. And I've decided to call him Totoro. And May finds Totoro first, presumably because she's younger. And then he appears to both girls while they're waiting for the bus. And they offer him an umbrella. And then he gives them some acorns that he helps them to grow. And it's just, I don't know, this movie is just like, it's a lot of vibes. It's a lot of just like hanging out in the forest vibes. It's its not really, I don't think you would necessarily watch it for plot. And then in the last 15 minutes, the movie is like, okay, yeah, let's have a plot. And basically <laughs> the girls have a fight and May tries to walk to the hospital by herself. She gets lost. Totoro and, the, and his cat bus need to come save her. And they bring the mom some corn. And then she gets better at the end. (laughs) So great. And then, like, again, just, like, bucking against stuff. They're not, like, we need some lore around this cat bus. There just is a cat bus. And you deal with it. And I love it. Why would you need a cat bus explained to you, you know? (laughs) Jeannie, what appealed to you about this movie? And how did it inform a young filmmaker? liked how slow it was like when you say it's about Mm -hmm. vibes they literally spend half an hour just setting up the hat they clean the house there's a few like little sprites or whatever they're called um bobbing around more guys yeah and it's just about architecture but it's deeply charming um so i just was i was into this sort of bucolic japanese rural landscape and I felt like I didn't know where this was going but it was a little journey that I wanted to go on and I knew that I needed to stick around because I was going to see that Totoro guy at some point (laughs) and yeah it just pulled me in immediately it felt like a really 
nostalgic and sort of comforting feeling. And it reminded me of sort of the, I don't want to be nostalgic about my 1980s childhood, but that idea that you would go off on your bike and your parents had no idea where you were going and what you were getting up to. And we, I lived quite rurally in the northeast of England and we would go off mm. into the wilds. And so I know Japan is very, very different, but there was a, a real appeal there. Mm. I loved the idea of these children discovering this kind of friendly yet a bit terrifying creature in the woods. And mm. what does that mean? Mm. There's so much music in the film and it is so addictive. It like gets into your bloodstream in some kind of way. Yeah. That little theme tune. Unbelievable. I was really taken by the relationship of the girls and like how real their relationship feels. And then just like how real they feel as like individual characters and even when the what's the what's the smallest girl's name the four-year-old may yeah when may is when may is running and she just eats shit and she splashes on the ground and she's covered in mud and i remember immediately thinking like oh like she doesn't cry which i feel like a little kid would do and then like immediately right after she brags to her sister like i didn't cry that's good right and that's (laughs) sweet (laughs) you just see her trying to be good and she's so they're so lovely yeah. Sarah, what appealed uh, revisiting this after so long? Yeah, I mean, I think mostly just how little happens in it. And then reading about it this morning, I realized that this is Totoro is meant to be a Shinto spirit, which makes total sense and also is something the movie never says, really. Mm. But he just is. He's And the, the idea of, I mean, really, that it, it feels like this movie is about the beauty of nature as much as it's about anything else. And just the way that the forest and the landscape is drawn is, I don't know, as much of a draw as, as I need, I guess. Hmm. Yeah. uh, Miyazaki says that the film's about the things that we've lost and the things that we may have forgotten. I've got a quote, I wrote this down because what we've forgotten, what we don't notice, and what we are convinced we have lost. And I don't know if you've seen much stuff with Miyazaki. He is a total character in his own right. On holiday, I watched two documentaries about Miyazaki. One very painful, long one that was it's a three-parter on NHK that is really like you can feel the, the documentary maker is showing up and Miyazaki's really like grumpy, doesn't want to participate. And then there's this <laughs> other one that was made over a year by this woman that is so magical. It's full of brilliant moments mm. and you really get to see this sort of creative genius yeah he just seems like this little cartoon character with his apron I imagine him being delighted inventing Totoro and sort of yeah navigating this world doing this like little world building Mm -hmm. and I find that really delightful when I watch it now Mm -hmm. all the little teeny tiny details of how it really does come to life especially like the cat bus (laughs) Can we t- can we talk about the cat bus? Please. <laughs> yeah. So I, I was looking at the cat bus again and I didn't realize how many legs this cat bus has. <laughs> it's something like 10 legs and that's just that's just completely normal and then the indicators are rats eyes hmm. or rats but their eyes light up oh my god and then the headlights of the bus are the cat's eyes it's just so brilliant it's so like with all of it it's slightly scary well for me it's slightly mm. sinister right. yet also you're in the gang so it's fun but it's a bit scary right well there are these giant creatures who it wouldn't necessarily be your first impulse to climb inside of or on top of, <laughs> but they just have these like powerfully mellow vibes, I guess is the best way to put it. Yeah. yeah like how does the interior work? I'm genuinely curious, but the, you sit amongst their organs, <laughs> <laughs> just snug against a stomach. Yeah. We talk. I mean, I feel like we've talked so much about, um, American tale director, Sarah. Oh, Don Bluth. Yeah. We talk so much about Don Bluth as being someone who made a lot of the animation we grew up on. That was like, not, 
saccharine's not the right word, but it had like some slightly more than human element than other stuff to the point where like things could feel menacing. Right. And this universe feels familiar in that way based on like sort of the stuff that I'm familiar with growing up. But like the unsettling thing in the background, whatever that is, is like a bit more broadly existential than immediately harrowing. Mm-hmm. There's menace in the background, but it's it's a different kind of menace than what I'm used to. The menace that I'm used to is like, oh, no, this could all go to shit immediately. And this feels mm-hmm. like slightly different in a way that clearly I'm struggling to be able to articulate. I think that there's an acceptance of death as ever present in this film mm. as sort of the texture mm. in the same way that they have this bucolic landscape. Death is like a layer of stuff going on, you know, will the mum mm. die? But also like when, you know, May goes missing and all the villagers come out and they're looking for her and there's this bit <laughs> where they've all got poles because they're down at the lake not dredging but they're polling the lake to see if she's drowned and it's done so subtly (laughs) and they're like it's not her slipper and i'm like whose slipper is it (laughs) there's still a dead girl oh you know there's there's always where do all their shoes on the street come from i it's a great i saw a pair set up on a crosswalk sign the other day and I was like how did that happen oh yeah that sounds like a night out in Nottingham (laughs) (laughs) right and the the girls do talk about how they're like one of them is like what is it you want mom to die you know it's like a classic sort of melodramatic exchange between kids where the the leap in logic is you want her to get out early you want her to die (laughs) I really liked and appreciated that exchange that they have yeah, it's there. It really is there. There there might be a drowned child. Mom might die. This is post-war Japan. I'm sure it was like just more than normal. Every It was on people's minds. There is a bit as well when the mom can't come and visit them because she's got a cold. And the older Satsuki, mm-hmm. the older daughter, says to me, well, they said last time that she just had a cold. And that's when... She ended up in the hospital and I heard that. I was like, oh, God, you know, the things that are told to children to let them know that it's okay, but they know about the threat of this. And Mm -hmm. yeah, it just I admire the way that this sort of feeling, this melancholy mood music is allowed to sort of seep in because it makes it feel much richer as a film, I think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, and I think that so many kids movies are based on the idea that you have to take the themes that are present in childhood and write them in a really big way and have like constant extreme peril. And, you know, everything has to be on a melodramatic scale and, like you know, highly menacing or highly funny or highly, you know, kind of tuned up as high as possible. And just like, I don't know, I think I, I feel like I've spent my entire life wanting to be in Totoro's lair. <laughs> just lying on his belly. Yes. I mean, I think that this is why sometimes I think about what it would be like to be one of Shaq's girlfriends, you know, <laughs> because like those are some of the only human women who get to do that. <laughs> I saw I saw a breakdown on one of the social media sites that was like, like optimal height for women in a partner and that are like had like these different like sort of stretches and my favorite mm. was like 510 to 62 is like boyfriend or husband material 62 to 66 I think was like a great one night stand and then anything above that is like like fantasy scenario wow <laughs> like what if you were Hagrid and I was Flora right exactly <laughs> you get to nestle into some something big you get to get in the nook like Carrie Bradshaw. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess the, the, someone's going to point me in the direction of a, a Totoro simulator at some point. <laughs> this room, I, I, I'm sorry that I have such limited frames of reference for this kind of media, but like this room, did you, did either of you see Big Hero 6? Mm-mm. I didn't. I don't know if that was like a Disney standalone movie, if it was a Disney movie, if it was, I know it was a comic. It had a big fluffy guy. I remember that. Yes. They had a comic that came out of it. And it's the thing that I think like that I've seen prior that most reminds me of this is that obviously that has like a bit more, a lot more action. It moves quickly. But just like having this fantasy, being a small child that 
has had the world go wrong in various ways or you know it's going to go wrong in some way because you've been alive Mm -hmm. and having just a big squishy thing to be there is beautiful (laughs) so beautiful how how could you want uh anything else Mm. And it's just so nice that Totoro isn't like, you know, they don't have him be voiced by like Michael Gambone and be like, girls, I am the last of my kind. You must avenge me. (laughs) What is the significance of the fact that Totoro doesn't like have a agenda that like he's not to your point, Sarah, he's not like Mm -hmm. do X, Y or Z on my back. Like he's a blank slate in a way that I feel is probably extremely significant for people looking in on this Hmm. yes well it's funny because when the pandemic started i decided to distract myself from overwhelming despair by looking for a large plush something a stuffed plush whatever but with a neutral expression because i don't love as an adult controlling what plush comes into my home (laughs) i don't like the ones that have big faces and if they look sad i feel guilty and if they look happy i feel weird (laughs) and so i need them to have sort of neutral expressions or at the most like a little kind of mysterious smile and i ended up buying a really big trout but later on when i got my totoro i feel like the thing about totoro is that he smiles in a way that doesn't wig me out interestingly (laughs) like he's just happy to be here yes To quote Sentimental in the City, he loves the sesh. (laughs) It doesn't curl up in a way that's maniacal. There's something about like the way that it, it's a neutral oval, which I really like. It is. Yeah. He's just like, he's here. He doesn't have expectations. You know, (laughs) I think the whole thing of the girls not being part of this like giant, this plot where like they're important to the forest or they're like the chosen ones or something. They're not. They're just like girls who live here now mm-hmm. yeah this is their neighbor yeah he just has a really big tummy that they can lie on <laughs> do you know they've made a stage show of totoro no how does that work it's so like delightful and you have to you're supposed to no one's allowed to take photos so you go and it's a total joy it's done <laughs> by um it's done by the Royal Shakespeare Company and it was on at the Barbican and I took my daughter and I was on it. It was like harder to get tickets for than Beyonce. I managed <laughs> to get us like really close seats and it's all stagecraft. So it's incredibly magical. So the the mm-hmm. sprites are on the end of people's fingers as these little dangling mm. creatures. But the Totoros, there's like, four or five of them and the Dilf dad voices the Totoro because they reveal mm, oh. it all at the end of who is doing stuff. That's so good. The Totoros are enormous animatronic puppets. And, and at one point he's mm. literally just the tummy. It's just this enormous mm. tummy that you can lie on. And it's such an sort of enticing and enveloping image. It's so wonderful. Yeah. But the the cat bus there is that the cat bus is a work of art. It's like a helium sort of inflatable lit up thing, Mm -hmm. like a big, enormous hot air balloon that they sort of guide across the stage. So amazing. It's so exciting to think about stagecraft things of that nature. And that makes me think of, I think, a lot of the stage directions and angels in America are very emphatic about the fact that like this isn't supposed to look realistic this is supposed to like clearly be a stage thing and to be sort of theatrical and spectacular and we're not trying to imitate life here we're trying to make something right here and I feel like there's I don't know the cultural divide between computer generated stuff and things that exist physically in space like it it feels like we're approaching some kind of a breaking point because it's like it feels like we saw cgi as a way to avoid the sort of human inconvenience and suffering that doing something practically would cause and now it turns out that cgi is like a great way to destroy the lives of the people doing it and maybe we should just make helium cat buses (laughs) (laughs) yeah and bring magic together on stage or when you know when i'm filming we definitely 
think and talk a lot about how to how to make things happen in real life. Mm-hmm. So in Your Fat Friend, there's a lot of the internet is a layer in the film. I feel like the internet sort of seeps into your into your walls or into your hands. Mm. And uh, Aubrey gets a lot of stuff sent to us. So we ended up projecting a lot of stuff in and then filming it in camera. Hmm. So it felt like this much more organic layer overlaid over stuff. And it feels much more exciting because you don't know what you're going to get. Yeah. Like that's the joy of it, the discovery of creating something new. Yeah. As a, a person who I assume when, you know, particularly when your daughter was young and watching a lot of children's media, like how does this fit into the landscape of children's media? Well, I think we watched almost everything that Studio Ghibli made. So like Kiki's delivery mm. service, just about a girl who goes around delivering stuff. I think she's on a broom <laughs> and um, Howl's Moving Castle. This is definitely, I'd say it's the gentlest. It's the most vibey. It's the most pared down because a lot of those things are, Howl's Moving Castle, it's very fantastical and you're sort of navigating enormous landscapes. Whereas, yeah, Totoro definitely feels like it fits into a world of, do you know the filmmaker Hirokazu Koreeda who made a stunning film called Afterlife? Mm. Oh my God, it's my favourite film in the world. Mm. It's about um, everyone who shows up at this place. It's like an administration office in Japan and everyone arrives there is dead. Hmm, great. And you're sort of, you're sorted and you're told, okay, you're dead. Can you just think of one memory that you want to take into the afterlife and the team Mm. here are going to recreate it so it's a bunch of nerdy film people creating this i don't know the breeze that lifts your hat off your head when you're on a tube train or the dance in a red dress that you learned when you were five years old or the clouds coming past your window as you fly an airplane for the first time Hmm. and so it's a really sort of deep and meaningful film about um, what are the meaningful memories that we're making in our life and what's the nature of the afterlife, mm. but also how do you make that magic? And Corrieda like melds documentary and fiction in this film. And this was like his transitional mm. drug <laughs> to becoming a fiction yeah. maker. Mm. But it, there's a stillness and a quietness and a smallness. And, you know, I describe my own filmmaking as shy people telling small stories quietly. <laughs> that was before I met Aubrey Gordon, who was like one of the loudest people <laughs> I've ever met. She's a shy person with a loud voice. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, um, yeah, I'm interested in the small moments and tiny tableau. Mm-hmm. And I guess Totoro and Afterlife are just jammed full of these little something somethings that are just good to spend time with. They're just, yeah, vibey and atmospheric and tell you about the world. Right. And that kind of you can learn as much about the world from kind of looking very closely at a small tableau or a small story as you can by kind of you know you can learn much more from doing that by seeing a lot of something but never really up close and like what is the the phrase that Jane Austen used to describe her writing that what you're saying reminds me of that she calls it the little bit two inches wide of ivory on which I work with so fine a brush which this is sort of a rather I think a allegedly self-deprecating quote but I think she actually feels really good about doing that and that's my theory I've never heard that before I I love that yeah two inches wide of ivory I like the mini focus I think it's really interesting to have a very distinct point of view well it's also when you when you started making documentary I, I feel like like the progression year after year in any sort of filmmaking doesn't seem to be like culturally moving towards quiet and stillness like that's not that like year after year we're not like in this next year we're gonna have like slower longer cuts and we're gonna like that's just not the direction and so as someone who is clearly informed by that and making the kinds of movies you're making I feel like anything to help make an argument for the import of being slow I I imagine was like was largely informative and probably still so for you oh massively so I mean 
I would say yeah, documentary for sure is getting bigger and louder and yeah, an event. Well, we're sort of you know the the time that that we're in at the moment has been described as the golden age of documentary, but what I think they actually mean is the golden age of true crime and big. They're called duckbusters, you know, people with one name, mm-hmm. and so it's actually a really challenging time to make stuff that's observational or anything where you don't know what the outcome is that you just want to follow your nose because that's the joy it's amazing when you're filming something and you're watching something from behind the camera thinking oh my god this is the film this is going to be in the film this is amazing because you don't know that mm-hmm. yeah this idea of i i had had the sense obviously you're much more much more in it in that you make documentary film but i had i had a similar sense where it seems like documentary is having a big moment for Maybe like more for financiers putting out sort of like event stuff. Bad documentaries are sure having a moment. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But like the stuff that I love, like Les Blank's my favorite and I like slow and weird and long. And that is a thing that you don't see so much. And then this is like slow and weird and long for kids. So I like that. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. It's, um, I think there's things that documentary can do that you just can't get with fiction. Like thinking about Miyazaki and like, I really loved watching those documentaries about watching him work and looking at him doing, he can draw like people can write. He's so fluid and just sort of, I learned so much about him as a creator and as a character. He has these like strange goats that live in um Ghibli world that mm. he he comes home and you see him just saying oh no I left the goats out and the kids <laughs> like seeing them and he just sort of puts them away and sometimes he's very mardy he likes being very grumpy and obviously doesn't get on with one of the documentary makers so he's always like shoving him away and this guy is like desperately trying to get the insight he's been there for like nine years filming and my empathy is with him but also I'm just like just ask him a question (laughs) just ask him (laughs) something good just stop he's really trying to push this idea that Miyazaki's son is trying to inherit the crown of the Studio Ghibli Mm -hmm. and Miyazaki is bitter about never being able to succeed more with another character other than Totoro Totoro becomes this big Mm. sort of um What's the word? Not like a nemesis, but becomes Mm. this huge shadow on his career. Sure. Whereas the other documentary maker, who I think has made a better film, really tunnels down into all those small things. Like there's a business meeting at Studio Ghibli and there's a Totoro sat at the board meeting with its ears just sort of poking above the table. And it's just really well drawn, I think. Mm Mm-hmm. Anyway, sorry, I'm rambling away here, but no, I'm just it's, thinking it's about great. how we do it. Well, these are the things that documentary can do mm-hmm. that fiction can't. That idea of when I'm trying to edit, you you write in the edit in a documentary, and sometimes right. it feels like you're sort of grappling these moments together to try and it's like lassoing an an idea mm-hmm. and melding things together, and you create something that didn't exist before that you couldn't ever write as a fiction. Right. Well, right. And it feels like, I mean, what I hate about, let's not not be too (laughs) academic about it. What I really loathe about what, you know, the kind of trends that we're seeing being honored in the marketplace now and the kind of endless material that um, kind of clogs streaming services at this point is that I think one of the great things about documentary film or kind of you know, any form of nonfiction, really. And to what you were saying, it is like as weird for animation to be a genre as for documentary to be a genre, because they're not genres, right? They're art forms. I feel like that's a Brad Birdism that animation is not a genre. And that one of the, I think, to me, most meaningful things about the documentaries that have affected me and the way that that genre has informed my life is that there is space for sort of the messiness and discursiveness and lack of plot in our actual lives. And that we sort of, you know, we figure things out by sort of meandering and sort of trying to see more clearly what's in front of us and what's in our lives, as opposed to being, you know, having some grand story arc. And it feels like the documentaries that we see 
benefiting from the kind of wave that we're in now are the ones that are like, what if you had a really strong story arc? And what if you could kind of predict exactly what was going to happen? It's like, well, then just write that. Just write a story then if that's what you want to do. Can we talk briefly about, is the boy's name Kanta? Kanta? I love this boy and I don't know if there's any significance. I love this boy for two reasons. One, in the face of meeting a new child, can't talk can only just make gestures, can't talk. And I love that. That feels resonant. And the other is the boy gives the girls his umbrella and his mom, I think, is like, that's great. He's filthy. He could use <laughs> he could use being <laughs> doused by water. And I there's just like a lot about this boy's existence that feels very familiar to like my eight year old existence. Yeah, he's not into, but also fascinated by the girls. In the um, stage play, they sort of build his part a little bit more, that he's just a bit more, you know, rubs eyes sure. and looks after them. I really loved the all the umbrella stuff in mm. the film. And I was thinking about all the time I spent in Portland filming because the people that owned the flat that I was staying in used to laugh at me because I I was there filming in October and November and so I take an umbrella with me wherever I go mm -hmm. like a sensible person and I didn't realize that people in Portland just ignore all of the heavy precipitation that is happening almost all of the time so I would step out of the house with an umbrella and I'd get heckled <laughs> from my neighbors <laughs> going, spot the tourists. <laughs> wow. Although probably they were whispering it because we don't like shouting here. Yeah, very polite, very polite. <laughs> it's not polite. It's just passive aggressive. <laughs> I will tell you that I have lived in Portland for most of my life and I did not own an umbrella until this year and it was because i bought a golf umbrella to take to the beach so i wouldn't get sun on me wow you said like a sensible person and you are right that is a thing a sensible person would do and i was reminded by of how unsensible i am because i have never once in my life brought an umbrella with me oh my God. i probably own about 15 umbrellas because i'm always losing them yes of course because we're 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 bog people i think <laughs> Um, why do we think, like, is there a sequel to this movie? No, I don't think so. Before I ask why we think there isn't, like, a franchise or a sequel, like, why, I understand that there's, like, there's sort of the universe of films that is made by all these filmmakers, but, like, there, why do we think that there weren't, like, because I know there's, like, merchandising for days, but why weren't there, like, hella sequels to this movie? I mean, we could compare this to The Incredibles, actually, where, like, The Incredibles 2 comes out many years after the first one nothing particularly interesting happens in it but it helps create more synergy for the roller coaster i guess mm. and what i think <laughs> is wise in that situation is like if you have one good story in you and you're not really compelled to do another one like just make a roller coaster made mm. sell the plush you don't have to make another weaker story yeah, this this in that way, there's the the book that came out, I think, this year or last year called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, I think it was called. And it's about these it feels like it's pulling from some of the stuff that you said, Jeannie, about sort of feeling trapped by your character being sort of becoming something that most people identify with because you always want to in that book in particular they always wanted to like make something different and make something artistic and they made something that did like commercially well and so there was just sort of constantly pressure to keep revisiting that rather than making new things and i imagine that that is always a struggle like like not making a sequel to something that did incredibly well seems to take more work than moving on wisely <laughs> i also think that miyazaki's kind of i think he's scared of it and mm. the toll of making these films is mm. like they take years and years and years of work and when you watch them in the studio it's not good times all the time it's like they're they're really working hard at getting this stuff down and 
there's a lot of existential crisis and sort of Miyazaki sort of saying, there's all these like great memes you can see of him online that have all been lifted from these docs where he's just going, this is terrible. It's a hassle. Everything's a hassle. And then he sort of goes, but the hassle is the thing that makes it worth it. So he's (laughs) in it. He loves it. He can't stop scratching that itch but the itch annoys him as well (laughs) but i think the shadow that totoro casts is a very big full-bellied shadow Mm. that he's scared to go there yeah like i don't think he wants to tarnish it and um his producer suzuki is just this sort of maverick genius who made Totoro, this kawaii plushie. They made it the logo of the of the company. We tried to get into Ghibli World when I was in Japan in 2019, and we could. You have to like. It's harder to get into than the stage show or Beyonce tickets or or anything. You have to really like plan your day and then plan and try and get the tickets. So we ended up going to this cafe where they had these little shoe bun Totoros. And I sort of managed to resurf, you know, dredge some of my rusty Japanese to ask, is it okay if I take your photograph with the Totoro of the people that had made it? Hmm. And it was delightful until like you you bite the head off this really <laughs> cute little you know, it's like a chocolate eclair, but a Totoro. But you're dismembering him. Yeah. Basically just chopping chopping his head off. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's too scary. You know, he's an he's an older guy. And so he keeps mm. saying he's retired. But at the London Film Festival a few weeks ago, he premiered his latest film, The Boy and the Heron, which is supposed to be his sort of swan song. And mm. it's had amazing review. I can't wait to see it. But, you know, has he got another film in him? Yeah, he's he's 82. That's not young. Yeah. I can't believe filmmakers who, you know, theoretically could probably pause, but it's just like, why? I don't, this is what I do. <laughs> I, make, I make movies. Well, the thing that's extraordinary about his films, which I didn't realize, is that when they start the machine moving, they don't know what the plot is. Hmm. So it takes years to draw... But the whole team are sort of going, what happens next? Because they don't know. And what he'll do is create an iconic image and then build the film around that. So with Totoro, this is some nerd stuff. The (laughs) The poster image of Totoro is Totoro and a little girl at a bus stop because that was the thing that inspired Miyazaki to make the film. He, He saw this bus stop all the time and thought about the people Mm. that sat there waiting for the bus and Mm. just thought one day, well, I wonder if that's a wood sprite, (laughs) a giant wood sprite that lives in the camphor tree. And they created this sort of key art, but it's just one girl because that was created years before the film ever came out. But yeah, they have no idea where the films are going. So they just make them and make them. They write them in the drawing and they're just there actually drawing by hand. It's, it's much more hand done than you'd, you'd imagine. Mm-hmm. Right. And you can kind of feel that in the like, we're letting the process take us rather than this is fully imagined. And it like hits this beat, hits this beat, hits this beat. Like to your point, there's a 30 minute section about just like understanding and exploring the house. And that like feels like it is born of that process. Yeah, totally. And um, getting to see the, you know, the onsen room where the, dad is going to lounge about and have his Japanese baths with the kids (laughs) of an evening. (laughs) So much of this movie just looks like a a moving painting. And I feel like, I don't know, that just doesn't seem like the kind of movie you make a sequel for because it feels like that's the kind of project where you would do what you came to do and then move on. I, I don't know about you as well. I mean, I don't know what it's like doing an episodic show where each episode is a new iteration of the same Mm. sort of thing I when I finished a film I'm like that's done (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. um is there anything else that we want to make sure we cover uh by way of Totoro before we start asking questions about uh we know Sarah's answer I think but before we ask questions about daddies (laughs) (laughs) I mean I just want to say I've got a favorite scene in this film let's hear it 
Well, I really like the bus, the, the cat bus, mm-hmm. obviously. But I really like the little dance they do to make the seeds grow. Oh my god, yeah. It's really charming. <laughs> Where they plant the seeds and the girls are looking to see if these seedlings are going to grow. And then Totoro comes with his guys and they do a whole little little dance and and it's it's amazing and then they come out the next morning and these these seeds are about two centimeters tall and they're so delighted and (laughs) it just feels gorgeous it's so exciting i love it yeah i think something this movie made me think about is how you know that this is kind of based on the idea that children are more receptive to spirits and to sort of seeing things that adults can't see and how you know, basically all sort of folklore and mythology is based on those concepts to some extent or another and how that feels really true, right? That there are so many things that we can confirm now with sort of science and lab conditions that people in various cultures have known for millennia because they figured it out and they couldn't explain to you how it worked on a molecular level, but they kind of know cause and effect. And that if you, you know, explain how nature works through spirits animating it then that isn't really that different from explaining how something is happening atomically or on a molecular level it's just you know because of cells it's just sort of a different kind of language for the things that we can't see but that we understand somehow to be animating what we experience and i don't know it just feels like a movie that has very little to say explicitly and therefore has a lot to say. And it also is just funny to me to think about watching this in at a sleepover in 1994 in rural Oregon in a place that did not look that different from the movie. And at a time when it was not typical at all for mainstream Americans to consume Japanese culture and that this was kind of a door opening between our worlds. And I feel really grateful for that. Thank you, Troma, for bringing this to the States. Thank you, Lloyd. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Lloyd Kaufman, for making another wise decision. <laughs> I like I, I like to the point that, you know, the children can see Totoro because they're, they're open to the spirit world. The eldest daughter can see Totoro essentially through May's eyes initially. Like, that's what allows her to see, to see that. And we have this interesting sort of circular struggle that's happening throughout the movie where they're learning how to be older, but they're through the trials that they're faced with. Their mission is aided in one way or another by Totoro, but by becoming older, they're going to lose the ability to see him. And it's like, that is like very much the plight of the child where you lo- you use all of this sort of fantastic reality in order to propel yourself forward to become older. But by becoming older, you lose that fantastical rea- that fantastic reality. Um, and I like that the dad, you know, gets that because he's like trying to make space for it. He's like, yes, our house is, there are ghosts and that's great. And this is the thing that we like about them. That's a, another Dilfy fact about Tim Daly, the dad. <laughs> the da- I mean, I love that about the dad that he, instead of going, you know, don't talk rubbish. What are you talking about? He's just like, oh yeah, that's a, that's the thing that happens. I remember when, our daughter Betsy was little. She used to have a lot of nightmares and night terrors. And so we always used to go in and and talk to the terrors. That's great. <laughs> and say, are you in here again? Come on then, let's clear out this room. It's time to leave. Betsy needs to get some <laughs> sleep rather than just saying, come on now, you just need to yeah. go to bed. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, We. T- I mean, we talk so much about that over the course of the show, and very recently we talk about the Nightmare on Elm Street universe and how formative that was for us. And like, what's so important about it is it was like, parents that did what they thought was in the kid's best interest and it wasn't and then when it comes back in a bad way the parents are like that's not happening and that's just how they deal with the horrors of whatever they're going through and um uh, our dad here is the opposite case of that acknowledges like because like what is helpful about not acknowledging the terror that children have like i don't understand it at all it's because small children can be reasoned with famously (laughs) they do it 
constantly and they love it you're i know that people get this but like by being by like shutting it off you're basically just like don't tell me about anything please and yeah. that's not a great setup for the rest of your relationship yeah just what white knuckle your way through your childhood come on I had to do it and so do you. Like, what a shitty way to be. Yeah. Anyway, Jeannie, I have a question for you. Sure. This is it. We know that Tim Daly Dad is a father in the Totoro universe. Who, in your opinion, is the daddy and why? Okay. So my relationship to the the Delphi Dad is different because I watched the Japanese. I haven't seen the dubbed version i've only seen the japanese version Mm. with subtitles so i want to say that totoro is the daddy with his big belly that you can lay your head on he's got the inviting tummy waiting for you to lay your weary head ah that's so good he really does are there like Totoros in the furry community? There must be. Come on. Oh. There fucking better be. There have to be. In what role would it be? Yeah, because that's such an interesting. Well, you got to let people climb on top of you. Someone let us know. Because guess what? I'm sure there are huge <laughs> Totoro fans listening, and I'm sure there are huge furries. I just want to take a nap <laughs> on a huge furry. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go with Cat Bus. Uh, I don't have a like a real cute reason for it or a good even a good reason. I just like it. I just like the cat bus. I like its design. I like that it's presented to, again. Where is it from? How's it function? We don't know. It's just there. You accept it. It takes you to mom. It takes you when you need to bring your one ear of corn to mom to help her out. The kids just want to help with mom. Ugh. <laughs> and I love the cat bus as part of that process. Yeah. Yeah, that's oh god, we haven't even. I, I don't want to go in this, but like, just that when you're a kid, and you know stuff is off, and you want to do something, and that's just like what is driving these girls is like they want to bring corn to mom so she can get well and come home. Ugh. Let your kids bring corn to the hospital. Let them get on the cat bus and bring the corn over. Actually, maybe every time you bring a child to the hospital, give them an ear of corn (laughs) so they can feel like they're doing something productive. That's our new thing. And just give it to someone. Yeah. Sarah Marshall. Yes. Who's your daddy? So to be fair, I have not seen the original voice cast version of this, the, uh, the English dub of this movie since I was a child. And I haven't seen the original version so I bet he's a DILF across all iterations. But all I can speak to is that Tim Daly in this movie is a fucking DILF. And that is all. Thank you. Beautiful. <laughs> Jeannie, this is a blast. And it was nice to talk about this movie with you. And then also just the state of documentary film. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. That wasn't, it was a little unexpected uh, detour, but um I've really enjoyed talking about, I love this one so much and I sort of want people to think about it if they love it or to watch it if they've never seen it. I think it's a, it's a good discovery to make. I feel like it's, it's kind of a testament to how like a slow, quiet thing can be exactly what people need in a way they, they don't necessarily realize. And, uh, and, and where, where can people see your fat friend? Starring Aubrey Gordon, directed by Jeannie Finley. And uh, the best place to find out everything is yourfatfriendfilm.com. And it's YR, just like Aubrey was when she was Your Fat Film. So we're Your Fat Friend Film on social media and, yeah, and uh, on the website. Beautiful. We haven't even mentioned in the English version, we have two, the Fanning sisters are our gals in this. Yeah. Yeah. Ellen Dakota. Wow. And also Leah Salonga is mm. the mother. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great, I feel like everyone is, is perfect. Sarah, I'm glad that you got, I gl- I'm glad that you got DILF energy from this. <laughs> Did I ever? You deserve it. Yeah. I, I think just if you're like a thirsty mommy and you want to watch something with your kids and just have a little DILF, little DILF glitter flying at your face, my neighbor Totoro. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, everybody. 
that's it for this week's episode of You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Thank you so much to Jeannie Finley for being here. Check out Your Fat Friend about our friend Aubrey Gordon, a wonderful documentary about a wonderful person made by a wonderful person. Where do you get that? Where does that sort of thing happen these days? It happens right here. Thanks to Miranda Zickler for producing and editing this episode. We love you, Miranda. We're happy you're a part of this team and uh, and you're great. Thank you so much to Fresh Lush for providing the beats that make the episode sound so sweet. Thanks to uh, Oversight producer, Carolyn Kendrick, who you know, makes sure the whole show family is making shows and doing the thing. We love and appreciate you, Carolyn. Uh, thank you for listening to the show, uh, y'all out there. Thank you for supporting the show on Patreon and Apple Podcast subscriptions. We're able to do this because of you, and uh, we appreciate you. You can get bonus episodes. You can get the bonus episode on Debs, if not right this second, pretty soon. Find us on the various social media channels at You Are Good or You Are Good Pod. And uh, I think that's it for right now. We're about to enter holiday movie season. We've got some that are right on the nose and we've got some that you're not going to see coming. So we are excited to share those with you. Thanks again for being here. I've said thanks a lot of times. Maybe it's in the air. Who knows? Uh, I'm just glad we get to do this. And I'm glad we get to do it with you. And we appreciate you. Don't forget that you, my friend, you right there, not the person beside you, not the person behind you, uh, not your imposter syndrome. You, my friend, are good. <laughs>